It's Wednesday, April 5th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, David Kretzman from Supernova. He's back from his trip. Welcome back, sir. Made it back in one piece. Good to be back. I had no doubt you would make it back in one piece. I appreciate that. I, I want to get to your trip in a moment, because you spent some quality time down under exploring Australia and New Zealand. But uh, we gotta we gotta talk about the story of the day. Which news is, ferry, the news ferry's been good because coming. To, I'll I'll be honest. Coming into this week, I was like, I really hope the news ferry shows up because there's not a lot of earnings news this week. Uh, the deal that we discussed yesterday has now been uh, well. It hasn't been set in stone. I guess it it'll be uh, all the documents will be signed in the next couple of months. Panera Bread. Is being bought, and we now know it's going to be bought by JAB Holding. It's a seven and a half billion dollar deal. If you're a Panera Bread shareholder, you're having one hell of a good week because a week ago this stock was trading around two fifty, and the buyout price is going to be three hundred fifteen dollars a share. What did you think when you when you saw this news? I mean, JAB Holding. You look at their portfolio of the companies that they own. They are very deep into the food space. They've got Krispy Kreme donuts, Green Mountain uh, coffee, Pete's, Caribou. They they love their coffee. They do. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely makes a lot more sense than Domino's acquiring Panera. Right, right. So <laughs> Panera seems like a much better fit. And based on what Ron Shake has been seeing, the um, founder and CEO of Panera, it, it sounds like JAB will be giving Panera a lot of autonomy. Which to me that that would be the only way a deal like this would make sense because you get the impression that Shake and company really love what they do, and the Panera 2.0 concept is really clicking. So I think. I would expect JAB to be a little bit more hands off, maybe with Panera compared to Krispy Kreme or or Keurig, which were brands or companies that were struggling a little bit more. Keurig had Keurig, uh, what was it, two point or Keurig Cold uh, was yeah. the, the big deal that that really just totally fell flat on his face around the time when uh, JAB bought him out. So Panera seems like it's. A good fit based on uh, where JAB has been been going, and uh, like I said, probably a little bit more hands off. So, I think it I think it makes sense. And for for Ron Shake and company, they can they can be uh, fully in control from the sound of it. So it sounds like a good deal for for both. It does. The one thing, and and you and Aaron Bush and I were talking about this earlier this morning. The one thing that's a little puzzling to me is if you think about Krispy Kreme, Curry Green Mountain, Pete's. Caribou, when they were all public companies on their own, by the time JAB got around to buying them, they had struggled. As you said, they were they were, and it was one of those situations where I just remember thinking, particularly in the case of Keurig Green Mountain, like, well, that's good. That's that's good that they're going the private equity route because then they can be out of the spotlight and they can. Panera Bread is crushing it. And so that's the only thing that's a little puzzling to me. But you know, as as Aaron Bush said, maybe JAB just wanted something a little easier that they didn't have to go in and fix. <laughs> yeah, they don't have to fiddle with it quite as much. And it sounds like that that's what JAB wants. That's what Panera wants. So it makes sense there. Obviously, a, a few years ago, there was a much different conversation around Panera. Even here at the Fool, we had a, a good amount of people here were skeptical of where Panera was going. It, it, it was struggling uh, on a lot of different. Uh, fronts and and it wasn't immediate, immediately clear whether Panera 2.0 would click, but it turns out Panera was one of the first restaurant chains to embrace digital, mobile, online ordering, and as a result, in a time when a lot of restaurants are struggling, Panera today is putting up astounding numbers. That's you know at the, well at the top of the pack along alongside companies like uh, Domino's and, and others. So 
a, a few years ago, it wasn't as obvious that Panera would turn into what it has today. The company, even over the past five years, still after this pop, the the stock is still underperformed S and P five hundred. Uh, I, I know. We have some people at the Fool who have followed the company and recommended the company a lot longer. So, if you've held the stock for eight or nine or ten years, you've come out well ahead. It's up three, four hundred percent. But over the past few years, the company has still struggled. And it's only really within the past year, 18 months, that it became clear that 2.0 was going somewhere. So, I think in the grand scheme of things, it still could be somewhat early. But like like we're talking about, JEB at this point, I think you just let Panera and Ron shake. Do what they're doing because it's clearly working, and in the restaurant space, not a lot of restaurants can say that. Right. I watched an interview that Shake gave this morning, and one of the things he was talking about was you go back three years when he made the comment about the the famous mosh pit comment, and he was absolutely right about that. And but one of the things he talked about in this interview was how long it takes. It's not just a matter of well, you just need an app and make it easy for people to order. No, no, no. You got to make sure that there are people in the kitchen who are going to be able to deliver on what is being ordered. And the the stat that surprised me a little bit when he said it, but I suppose it makes perfect sense. When it comes to mobile ordering at Panera Bread, 70% of those orders are customized. So it's not just someone saying, oh, I want a bowl of chicken soup. Or I just want this sandwich. It's I want this sandwich. I want it on this type of bread. I don't want the mayonnaise. I want the spicy mustard. Like all that, all that sort of thing. So they really put so much. I mean, it is all the more impressive what they have done. It's also if you are, say, for example, a Starbucks shareholder, where one of the recent stories about their business is they're struggling a little bit with the mobile ordering. You realize that oh yeah. There's a lot more that goes into it, and it's not something that can be turned around in one or two quarters. No, certainly not. And I think another company that really needs to take notes from Panera and Starbucks is Chipotle. And Chipotle actually took the the chief digital or chief information officer, Kurt Garner, from Starbucks about a year and a half ago. And even at Chipotle, it's just been such. It's like going through molasses there. It's just so <laughs> slow to improve the app. And I love Chipotle. I'm one of their regular users. But their their mobile and online ordering experience compared to Panera and Starbucks is just way behind. So this stuff does take time. And I think it just reiterates or reinforces the importance that as investors, you have to be patient. Uh, no no company is going to go up in a straight line. Companies like Panera or Starbucks will go through these stumbles, but if you believe in the leadership, the brand, uh, the, the long-term advantage of a company, it pays to, to stick it out. Because even though Panera had a few years where it struggled, by and large, patient investors are, are very, coming out ahead. So, I, I think it's just critical to, to be patient, which is easier said than done when, you're, when you are invested in a company that is going through some shorter-term stumbles. Best performing restaurant stock of the last 20 years, better than Chipotle, Starbucks, any of them, it has returned over 10,000% over bad. a 20-year period. So, definitely a testament to long-term buy and hold. Uh, Twitter has lost Thursday night NFL games to Amazon, and it's understandable why, because Amazon ponied up five times the amount of money for the Thursday night games than Twitter did a year ago. So, Amazon's paying $50 million for, I guess, what, 10 Thursday night Ten NFL games. games? Which is essentially the same deal that, that Twitter had last year. Right, yep. right. Although they were they were only paying ten million for yep. it. Besides um, that, and it's not exclusive. It's the, they'll still be on the broadcast networks. But this, I mean, this this comes at a time when Amazon just 
shares just broke through the nine hundred dollar barrier and it hit another all time high this week. And it just, it seems like while Amazon is the headline here, it it, it really does seem more like in sports, there are games where. It's like, well, did one team win it, or did the other team just sort of lose it? I look at this story, and I know the headline is, Amazon has won the right to stream these games. I sort of look at it as like, uh, no, Twitter. Twitter's the loser. That, to me, is the headline. Especially with Twitter, with Jack Dorsey coming on as CEO over the past year and a half or so, the company was really focusing on being the live events platform. And this NFL deal seemed to be a pretty big piece of it. And it's not like Twitter is struggling for cash. Like I've I've been critical of the company. I'm a disappointed shareholder, like a lot of people. But they have over two billion dollars in net cash, and this seems like the type of thing where you 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 don't want to focus so much on immediate ROI here. Uh, so I I'd be curious to see what what was the max price that Twitter went up to, and they just said, okay, at this point, it's not worth it. It kind of reminds me of the the Costco and American Express deal where Charlie Munger, Berkshire Hathaway coach. Um, I guess he's vice chairman under under Buffett. He basically said comments along the line like, "If you're American American Express, you just you pay a little bit more and you keep that deal. Like clearly, that's valuable to your brand and to to your competitive position." I think if you're Twitter, you needed the NFL deal far more than Amazon needs it. Uh, but I, I think it makes sense for Amazon. It it beefs up their their video platform, and I'll be curious to see because they will have some time for ads during the games. So I'll be curious to see. What what that mix of ads look like? Will they just be promoting Amazon NFL gear? Will they be promoting other Amazon products and services, or will they open it up to outside advertisers? If I'm Amazon, I think this is a great opportunity to to test uh, promoting your own products oh, yeah. and services. So I, I'd be surprised if that isn't at least a, a pretty big focus of of theirs. Yeah, that was one of my thoughts when I saw the price tag. I thought, okay, so can they sell fifty million dollars worth of stuff? On ten consecutive Thursday nights this fall, we'll find out. I think they probably can, and they'll bring in more Prime memberships. It just it makes that Prime offering all the more attractive, and especially the the video aspect. And I think more people are waking up to to the fact that Amazon has some quality original shows. And I just found this out today, but they they have. Uh, Kind of a partnership with the NFL already with one of their shows where they follow an NFL team through the season, and apparently that's one of their most popular shows. So I think they feel pretty good that this will be a hit, and uh, they they have that data, and yeah, I think this is a golden opportunity for them to to kind of venture into that live TV market and figure out how they can integrate the Amazon experience with with live TV. Let's talk about your trip, and we'll start with any business takeaways. You were gone for three weeks. Three weeks. Three weeks. So, one or two business opportunities that you saw, whether it's investing opportunities or a U.S. brand that's doing well in Australia. Did you meet up with the full Australia? People? I was able to meet up with most of them. They actually had a member event on the Friday before I left, so I was able to meet up with a lot of them. I stayed with Claude Walker, who's one of our advisors over there of Hidden Gems in Australia. So. Big thanks to to Claude and the team for for meeting up. I was able to see Joe, nice. Uncle Joe. So how is uh, Uncle Joe? He seems like he's doing well. He's heading up a fund now. And uh, what's interesting about Australia compared to the U.S. is, I mean, the, the Motley Fool in Australia is really a big fish in a small pond. So I think, obviously, in the U.S., when it comes to retail investors, we have more clout than probably any organization in the U.S. But we're still in a big pond. Like our analysts aren't jumping on conference calls talking to management. But in Australia. Uh, 
it's not uncommon for it to to go on a conference call and hear a Motley Fool advisor asking questions to management. So it's just it's a different ball game over there to some extent. But yeah, the the team over there is doing some great work. Fantastic. So in terms of what you saw in terms of business and investing, share one or two things. Well, one thing to me, and this is an area that I definitely want to pay more attention to now, is just the the whole payments space because I didn't actually convert any cash while I was over there. There were only two instances when I needed cash. It was either when you needed to, to ride the bus in New Zealand, they, they would only accept cash, they wouldn't accept a credit card. And similarly, in Australia, I needed to pay cash for a shuttle to the airport. So, other than those two instances, I, I was able to just bring my, my credit card. If you have a travel card, like there's no foreign transaction fees. And to me, it just Reinforce the the position of uh, especially Visa and Mastercard because they are really are bringing us toward a, a cashless society, and I think they have an incredible position. And also, just thinking more broadly about the payment space in New Zealand, in particular, I noticed a few um, a few different retail spots that had Alipay and WeChat Pay. So that's Alibaba and Tencent, and you know, two of the heavyweights in China that have that are rolling out. Uh, their mobile pay services, essentially. So it, it just makes me wonder what company in in that whole space has the best position, because obviously uh, Alipay, WeChat Pay, that's venturing closer into PayPal's t- territory. Then you have online payment processors like Stripe. So th- it's just a whole category that, as a whole, seems to be pretty crowded. But I, I just keep coming back to Visa and Mastercard. I think. Those are the toughest companies to disrupt or overtake. They just have very powerful network effects at play, and it shows in the financial statements. Like PayPal is a profitable company; they have a profit mar- net profit margin of about thirteen or fourteen percent. Visa has about a forty percent profit margin, and Visa and Mastercard essentially have no cost of sales, so their gross margin is ninety six percent. In the case of Mastercard, their gross profit margin is a hundred percent. They have no cost of sales, so it's just. Incredibly powerful and profitable companies. It just the, their competitive position is reflected in the financial statements. Now that means they do have a pretty big target on their back because if if you're you know a company nipping at their heels, that's a pretty attractive position to be in. But I just see those companies uh, as least likely to be immediately disrupted. So I want to take a closer look um, at those companies for for sure. And a month or two ago, I was watching an interview with. Visa's relatively new CEO on Jim Cramer, and he was talking about the opportunity. and And Cramer said, "You know, you're you're a two hundred billion dollar company, but it sounds like you're just at the beginning of your growth opportunity. Like the the majority of payments around the world are still in cash, so there's just a huge opportunity to transition from cash to credit cards. Um, and obviously, I'd say New Zealand and Australia probably toward toward the the forefront as far as uh, credit card adoption uh, compared to some other countries that you might visit. But that was definitely something that stuck out to me. Nice. And I'm assuming you had a little bit of fun. I had a lot, yeah, a lot of fun. Pretty much the whole whole trip. I was in the the North Island in uh, New Zealand, so I had some time to explore around there. Went to to Hobbiton, so I, I understand that you and Bill were talking about Lord of the Rings yesterday. Yes. And I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan, like I've, I watched the three original movies, and I watched maybe like one and a half of the Hobbit movies. But uh, Hobbiton as well. People had told me like, even if you're not a huge Lord of the Rings fan, it's it's a cool thing to check out. And I think it's probably the closest thing New Zealand has to to a Disneyland <laughs> type of experience. So is it is it a theme park? Is it a town? Is it what is it? What it is, uh, the 
the it's the original farm that they filmed the whole Hobbit set. So this is like the Hobbit village. So where like Bilbo and Frodo are from. Uh, so initially, with the when they filmed the Lord of the Rings last decade. They they essentially tore down the set, but then when they returned to do uh, the Hobbiton movie, the farmer who who owned that land very smartly uh, suggested to to Peter Jackson, the director, hey, let's leave the set up and let's invite other people to come here. So it is not a cheap experience by any means. Like you're paying seventy eighty dollars a person to get in, and they are just filling busloads by you know every ten fifteen minutes. So. That farmer made a very smart uh, business decision, but it, it's a fun experience. You're there for a couple hours. You you walk through the whole Hobbit set. It's just kind of similar to, to Disneyland. You're just kind of transported to another world. And if you're you know a diehard Lord of the Rings fan, it's definitely a place to go. Thanks for being here, man. Great to be here. I really appreciate you coming by. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.